Hi, it's Sophie Pascoe here and you're listening to my podcast, Outside the Lanes. A podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. To take on any challenge successfully, first you need to take care of yourself. As a Westpac ambassador, I've been exploring specific areas of growth to inspire you and I to achieve whatever we set our sights on. This is a podcast series that focuses on key themes that are very personal to me, such as leadership, values, balance, health, and more. I have carefully selected mentors who are successful in their field to have beautiful conversations with. In each and every episode, I will be asking a new interviewee about their learnings, their challenges, their wins, their journey, ultimately getting under the skin of what it takes to be in their lane. In today's show, I'm talking with Jimmy Spittle, one of America's Cup's biggest names. Australian-born, Jimmy burst onto the scene in the year 2000, where at the age of 19, he became the youngest skipper ever in an America's Cup. Ten years later, he became the youngest skipper to win the Cup as the skipper for Oracle Team USA, and it didn't stop there. In 2013, Jimmy, also known as his nickname, or aka the Pitbull, skippered a successful defence for Oracle Team USA when he narrowly beat Emirates Team New Zealand by overcoming an 8-1 deficit, which has become widely known as the greatest comeback in sporting history. Jimmy Spittle joins me today to discuss goal setting, seizing opportunities and what it takes to achieve success. We dive into his sailing journey, the highs and lows and everything in between. Jimmy is a total inspiration to others, on and off the water, and very much a team player. He is someone who finds comfort in the uncomfortable through drawing on the strength of the team he has around him. It was a true honour to sit down and have a chat with Jimmy. I hope you enjoy. Let's start at the start. Can you give us an insight into what life is like for you growing up? Well, I grew up just north of Sydney in the bush in the National Park. And it was like a little island, really. It was boat access only, so no roads. You would have to get in a boat to go anywhere. So we just had what we called a little tinny, a little outboard. And to get to the mainland, to get to school, you'd have to get in this little tinny or there was a little ferry that would come around and pick up a few of the kids. And so it sort of forced independence because as you started to grow up, that's how you got anywhere. But the coolest part was... We were growing up on the water. We couldn't really get TV that well. So it was all about getting out and doing something, you know, either up in the bush or building BMX jumps or on the water. And that's really, from the age of five, I got a windsurfer and that was the real sort of breakthrough and sense of freedom that you could actually get out on the water and you're kind of free of everything else and just an unbelievable environment to grow up in. So do you reckon that's how you got into sailing or what was the one part that you were like, right, I'm going to be a sailor? Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, like I guess most boys, like I really like the outboard fascinated me as a little kid, you know, just the (laughs) throttle and trying to, that was the goal where we grew up was, it wasn't so much to buy a fast car, it was to get a tinny and get the (laughs) biggest outboard you could put on the back of it. That's what you live for. When I was probably around 11, we used to have these big council cleanups where a barge would come and collect like old fridges and junk. And anyway, one of our neighbours was throwing out an old, what was a Manly Junior, kind of like an optimist, an old wooden one. And so we grabbed it. My sister and I, my dad, we repaired it and painted it. And then we used to just start sailing that after school. 
And then one day dad basically said, hey, listen, you know, on the mainland, they actually race these boats. So why don't we think about going over doing a race? And so that really was the, I guess, the step into it. Until then, I really just did windsurfing for fun. You know, I used to tow behind the tinny on surfboards and there was really no competition at that point. It was more for fun. But that step was what introduced the competitive side. Awesome. And what part of you got interested in, in the America's Cup? Well, when Australia won in 1983, it was a really big deal because Australia was going through a massive depression. At that point, America hadn't been beaten in something like 132 years. So it was an incredible streak. And there's this sort of little Aussie battler team over there taking to America in the final and essentially breaking the biggest winning streak in sport. And it, it just lifted the entire country out of this depression. And it was just a game-changing moment. I was only, I think, three or four, but I still vividly remember one of the crew members also lived in this little community where we were, who was on the boat, a guy by the name of Colin Bichel. And anyway, his parents lived over the bay and, and I still vividly remind parents for weeks after Australia 2-1, stumbling up the hill after drinking all day partying, you know, it was just, you know, Australia's in this nonstop party and it was just this amazing feeling, you know, and I remember having like the pencil case and the lunchbox at school with the boxing kangaroo and, and I remember just saying at that, oh, that's what I want to do when I grow up and he was just like, yeah, righto, mate, you know, sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that would, to me was the attraction of the America's Cup back then because it was just a team of guys going out there taking on the world's best. So what does it take to be an American Cup sailor? It is a real team environment. And I think a lot of people naturally see the athletes, the guys that sail on the boats. But the size of an America's Cup team is 100 plus people. You know, when you look at the boats now, okay, there's 11 guys that sail on the boats, but there's a huge support team behind them. I mean, we design, build these boats engineering, uh, administration, the sail off, the guys working the sails, the shore team, the trainers, the coaches. I mean, it really is a pretty amazing group of people and quite a big mix of people. This team I'm involved with now, Luna Rossa, really is an Italian team. I'm the only non-Italian on the sailing team. We have a few international designers and naturally some pretty talented Kiwi shore team boat builders. But it's, a, it's just such a massive team effort. So clearly you need to be good at working with people. You need to be able to put the team before yourself. It's a huge commitment, these programs. It is. It can be a lot of the time, seven days a week. You see your team members a lot more than you see your families. But on the flip side, if you are ever fortunate enough to be successful, man, it is one of the most rewarding experiences you can go through. And I think just because it is so difficult and such a challenge, that's what really makes it a payoff. Mm. And being the skipper, you obviously have a lot of leadership on your shoulders. Gaining that respect, how do you gain that from your team members? Well, I've been really lucky from a young age to always be surrounded by really good people. And for the most part, better than me. And that's really forced me to have to work harder. You know, I just don't think I've had the talent that a lot of the guys have had. So that's forced me to have to really kind of get up before them, try and stay later and really put in those hard yards. I'm always sort of in fear of letting down my teammates, especially when you see the amount of effort that the design, the shore, the engineering team put in, and they don't even get to sail on the boat. So yeah, just that fear of sort of letting my mates down is a motivating factor. 
I've always found if you put in the work, whether it's on the shore, in the gym or on the water, then any time you ask the guys to sort of jump in the fire, they won't even think about it or hesitate. So confrontation is not a massive issue. (laughs) No, I mean, the thing I've learned with these teams is that it's difficult to hire people because you never really know what someone's really like until you're at a really tough situation, you know, a match point scenario or you've just had a heavy loss or made a huge mistake. So you can interview people, you can test people physically, but until you, let's say, have come off a, a huge mistake or a huge defeat, uh, you're, or you're at match point, you don't really know how someone's going to react or how someone's going to be. And I've got a lot of mates in the military that they've told me similar things. We've tested guys and that, but until they're in the real battle or a firefight or a tough situation that's when you really see what guys are like and it's the same deal i found in sporting teams in that you always get a few surprises here and there you know a guy that's sort of a little bit under the radar may test pretty averagely but if he's got that work ethic you'll just see the a few cases where there's certain guys will just step up and rise out of nowhere and they're the kind of guys you want in your team but they're difficult to find because it takes those sort of situations to you know for them to shine mm. In regards to the America's Cup, can you tell us how it works in terms of you competing for another country? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're an Australian, uh, but you are now the skipper of Luna Rossa, the Italian team. Are you a loyal Australian or, <laughs> or are you sort of got country flags stapled all over you? mercenary, yeah. <laughs> no, the way the America's Cup works is that a challenge starts, funny enough, from a yacht club. So at the end of the America's Cup, yeah, it has to actually come through a yacht club. And typically what will happen is there'll either be a backer. So, you know, let's say like a Patrizio Batelli, who is the boss of Prada, or say a Larry Ellison. They may say, okay, I'd like to enter the America's Cup. They'll enter it. And then so that'll be, let's say, an American team or an Italian team. The unique thing about the America's Cup is once you win it, you essentially get to write the rules for the next one with the first challenger that enters, which is known as the challenger of record. And, and so between the two, you start developing a protocol. And that protocol is sort of like the Ten Commandments. It has a list of rules. Okay, guys, the race will be in New Zealand. It'll be in this boat. Here's some rules you've got to follow. So one of the rules this time around, and that has been in there on and off during the America's Cup, is nationality. Okay, guys, there is no nationality rule. Or this time, for example, there is a percentage of the athletes that have to be from the challenging country and anyone else has to spend X amount of time in the country. So so my situation, I've had to spend a certain amount of period living in Italy and qualifying to be able to sail on the boat, but it changes. The key thing for me is that I think in international sport, you want to be able to go the be- against the best. And so let's say that the best sailor in the world is from Brazil, but there's no Brazilian team. If you go into that competition and you win it, I mean, have you really won? For instance, if your toughest competitor in the pool, let's say their country wasn't allowed in the games and you went there and competed, have you really won? You know, mm-hmm. And so that's why I respect that, of course, in my heart, it would be an amazing thing to be a part of a successful Australian America's Cup team. But from a competitive point of view, I want to win, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to compete, I want to be in the game and 
funny enough, the most successful teams I've seen is actually the teams that have a real blend of different cultures and nationalities because I think Aussies and Kiwis, we operate in a certain way. You know, we have a certain culture and a way of going about things. Europeans, much different. Americans, different again. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think they all have their positives, their pros and cons. But the cool thing is, is when you get a collective group together from different cultures, they'll bring all those different opinions and ways of decision-making. And, you know, it creates a little bit of debate here and there. I'm not going to lie to you. But ultimately, I think you get to a better solution if you've got a more of a representation of some different ways of going about it. And I think you see that in a lot of different areas, whether it's business or life. If it's just a male-dominated thing or if it's just people from a certain background trying to make a decision, there's no way it's going to be as good as a collective, different groups, people, genders represented making the decision. There's no doubt in my mind you're going to reach a better decision that way. So the times we've been successful, it's because we've had a little bit of a, a mix of people with different backgrounds. Yeah, being well-rounded. That's awesome. Yeah, what do you think is your biggest challenge going into this campaign? Well, I think the biggest challenge for me from the get-go was I did a decade with Oracle. So we developed a certain process, a certain culture, and of course, during those three campaigns, you have some changing of personnel and people, of course, but you still have a, a bit of an ethos and a way of operating in that team. Changing over to Luna Rossa was none of my teammates from the past decade, completely on my own, into an environment that is a totally different culture. I mean, living somewhere where they don't speak English, obviously, living in Sardinia, and with a team that operates much differently than what I was used to in the past. And again, I'm not saying that the Oracle way was the only way to do it. I'm not saying one is right, but it was much different, really took me out of my comfort zone. And I effectively almost had to reset. You know, you're building different relationships, you're learning to operate, you're learning just to live in a culture, you know, just to try and go to the shops and do a whole bunch of stuff that you kind of took for granted in the past. But, you know, friends have told me, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And if you really want to learn, you man, you've got to get out of that comfort zone. So in that regard, it's been great for personal growth. In terms of a sporting question, yeah, this one will be extremely tough. I think, you know, we are huge underdogs. I mean, Team New Zealand always have been, let's say, the benchmark in the America's Cup. And this time around is no different. They've got the best sailing talent in the world, incredible designers, shore team, boat builders. Man, they're in the home waters, in their home country, home stadium. Man, it doesn't get any tougher than that. But again, as an athlete and a competitor, what an amazing opportunity to get to experience that. Like how many people, how many rugby players get to experience going against the All Blacks in a Rugby World Cup final in Eden Park? Not many, mm. you know, and that's the way I feel and the team at Luna Rossa feels taking on Team New Zealand in this America's Cup match. What an amazing opportunity. So yeah, we're underdogs, but hey, that's what's great about sports. Sometimes the underdog wins. You, as a skipper, though, have more experience winning an America's Cup than Pete and his team. So, you know, is there an inkling inside of you that you use that experience to be able to obviously come back and take this challenge from them? Well, Pete 
Burling, Blair Took, Glenn Ashby, and a lot of those sailors have got in the team. I mean, Pete and Blair, in my mind, are the best in the world, no doubt about it. I mean, amazing talent. Not only that, but just good people, mm. you know, both good mates of mine. I think it's awesome what they're doing on an environmental side. In some ways, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Peter Blake. He had a huge sort of attachment and affection for really trying to educate people about what was happening out in the world. And so I really respect that they're taking that on as one of their big goals. We're going to need to use every little trick we've got on the book against these guys because they've done an amazing campaign. They've got a, a very refined and from a technology point of view, the boat looks very, very good. One thing we've got going in our favor is we are battle-hardened. That's the toughest thing. And what makes the America's Cup so unique is that when you win it, you're automatically into the main event. You're into the final. Downside is you don't get to do the regular season. You don't get to do the round robins. You don't do the semifinals, the finals. We've just come from that. And you know what it's like. In You can train as much as you want. We've got simulators now that we use. There's no substitute for real high-level competition. It exposes your weaknesses. You really see how yourself, your teammates operate in that sort of an environment. So that's the advantage for us. We're battle-hardened and we've been through some real racing and we've been under pressure. Being under pressure, what does that look like for you? I like to be under pressure. You know, I, I really do feel like it. That's We're all human we feel it. And sometimes you, you get the anxiety and that, let's say, that nervousness. But... For me, it really is that adrenaline, you know, it just, it's such a motivating factor because again, you know, I just look around the guys that have put in so much work into this team, like the Shore team, since we got here in New Zealand in September, they've had Christmas day off, they had a Sunday off after we beat American Magic, and then they just had Monday off after we beat Ineos Team UK. Three days off since September. They've got partners, they've got kids, but they're there in that shed, they're there before us, they stay after we go. So if there's any a point where you are lacking motivation, you only have to look around at guys like that. So the pressure, yeah, I enjoy it. But again, it, it, it's more the excitement. You know, I just love that race morning, waking up and thinking about it. And then as soon as that gun fires for the pre-start, it's just such an addictive feeling. <laughs> I can absolutely relate to yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I even remember like after in swimming competitions, when I come home, I'd need to do something that gives me an adrenaline rush just to feel what I felt and what you train for for four years. Like, it's such a good feeling. Travelling around the world is obviously very tough on the personal life. You've got a beautiful wife, Jennifer, and two boys. They get to obviously travel with you as well at times. How much time do you actually get to spend with them and, and balance your personal life and professional life? Yeah, well, that's probably the biggest downside of the whole game. I mean, I really feel like I'm living a dream. I get to do what I want. I wake up every single morning. I'm so excited and lucky to go and spend it with amazing people. The downside is I spend more time with my teammates than my family. It's just a fact. And so I wake up in the morning, they're asleep, I go, and I come home and typically the kids are in bed. So that's a real challenge. And in a lot of ways, it's quite a selfish sort of way of living that I operate on in that it's all about the team and me getting myself as prepared as I can. And to be quite honest, you know, I'm putting the team before my own family, which is, a, you know, a real selfish thing when you look at it from the outside. But the fact is, I sort of made the commitment to the team that I would be all in and I would do it. And so I'm so lucky that Jen, 
she's part of the team and she accepts that, you know, we operate that way because if we weren't able to operate that way, you know, if I didn't have that support from her and really, you know, looking after the boys and taking care of the home front, I wouldn't be able to perform and I wouldn't be at a level that would be required to compete against some of these guys. In terms of training, especially in your role as skipper, how much training do you need to obviously skip the team to winning? Well, I've always loved training. When I first started in the America's Cup game, I don't remember any of the skippers or helmsmen training, you know, but I came from a background of playing rugby, doing some boxing. I just love sport. And so I was always pretty active. Yeah, I remember at the beginning that not too many of those guys are doing it. Now they're all amazing athletes. I mean, you look at Burling and Ainsley and all these guys and everyone is, everyone now has to be an athlete. The physical training part has been huge for me because I feel mentally at my best when I'm physically in great shape. I've always found the boxing training, again, when I'm doing that sort of training, I seem to make better decisions. And I think the reason for that is it takes you to exhaustion. If you make a mistake, it's obvious in boxing, but you have to make decisions under stress, being put under pressure. And that's kind of how these boats are now, where everything happens so fast. A lot of the time, the guys are stressed, exhausted. And if you make a mistake in these boats, there's going to be serious consequences. So yeah, I've just found my decision-making, my you know, hand-eye coordination is much better. And I've, man, I've been putting in a lot of work since I got here with Monty Beetham and Mike Legg. And I feel in the best shape I've been in a long time. In terms of skippering the team, what's the difference between a skipper and the rest of the team and how much workload you have to do on the boat? Well, so everyone in the sailing team has a role on the boat, but then they all have also have a really significant role off the boat. And I think that's something that's quite different than the majority of sporting teams in the world. Because, you know, a lot of my mates who play professional rugby and that, okay, you play the game and yeah, you go back and you'll drill and debrief hard all the video footage but you're not going to go then work on the sponsorship side you know with the rugby team you're not going to go work with the maintenance guys in the field or whatever it is but in the america's cup the secondary skills and role you have on the land is massive and plays a huge part in the success of the team in that the guys the, all of the grinders are involved let's say in the hydraulics the electronics all the systems working with the software engineers let's say the helmsmen and the trimmers are all working with the sail designers the boat designers foil designers developing the simulator the software a lot of the campaigns uh, you're involved in running the budgets going commercially out raising the money i mean it sometimes it involves everything but the fact is the sailors are the, are the customer, they're the end user of the boat. So they can't just turn up and think, oh, get handed the boat and off we go and oh, we'll just see if it's fast. They have to, they're the end users. So they have to be involved in the decisions. Okay, where's that winch going? What is that hydraulic system? You know, they have to make those decisions because they're the ones at the end of the day will be held accountable throughout the whole campaign. So that is one of the coolest parts in this challenge is that it is not just a sporting role. You know, there's actually a huge role once you come in off the water. These boats have a huge advantage through technology now and it's we've seen obviously through the years that it's grown. Those boats are scary. <laughs> um, do you ever have fear out on the water that, you know, a mistake could happen and if a mistake does happen, it obviously could be quite a big incident. 
Yeah, without a doubt. It's a game changer now because in the past, you know, with your typical, let's say, monohull sailing boat, like the ones you just see out on the on the harbour, you couldn't really mess it up. You know, I mean, you could rip a sail. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're coming onto the dock or something, you could make a mistake. But you were going so slow that, again, you couldn't tip the boat over. I mean, there was really no risk. Now it's different. I mean, now these boats are doing almost 100 kilometres an hour and you make a mistake there's going to be serious consequences, no seat belts. The, the things aren't built for, yeah, they're built strong, but there's definitely vulnerability for the guys. You're wearing impact vests, you're carrying spare air, knives. It's a completely different game. And I think we've seen the, the actual people change in terms of the athletes and the way they can, you know, think a couple of steps ahead when they're exhausted. But yeah, the boats take you out of your comfort zone regularly. But again, it's just so frigging addicting, you know, like that <laughs> adrenaline and that to- those times where it, you are a bit fearful and it does take you out of your comfort zone. Man, later on, you're just like, God, how good was that? You know, and so that is a real attraction at the same time. Has there been an incident that you had classes, gosh, would never want to be back in that situation again? Without a doubt. Uh, San Francisco, we just launched these AC-72, these massive foiling catamarans. And we were on our day seven. And these things take, I think, like 10, 11 months to build. So the build term just been flat out. We finally built this thing. We're out on San Francisco Bay, which in itself is a pretty intimidating place to sail. You know, you've got Alcatraz, the bridge, the fog, like it, and it just, every summer in San Francisco, it is just dogs off chains, you know, just blowing. And so we're out there and we, we just got caught in way too much wind that we could handle. Uh, things just went for the worst. And on that particular day, it was the strongest what we call ebb flow current. So all the water in San Francisco Bay, the Sacramento River is trying to go out under the Golden Gate Bridge. And anyone that spent some time outside on that coastline there is, it's a formidable place. You don't want to be out there. I mean, the Maverick surf break is not that far away. It's just a tough coastline. So anyway, we found ourselves in a tough position. We just we were sailing with these huge, hard aeroplane wings and you couldn't just pull the sail down, you know? So the only way to get home was to pull off this sort of bearaway manoeuvre in way too much wind. And so, of course, off we go and just massive nosedive, flip, people throwing everywhere. And I don't know, it was a pure miracle that no one got hurt or killed. But suddenly we found ourselves in a situation where, okay, we sort of had collected and found all the guys but we had this boat just flipped over on its side and Mother Nature is pretty much just dragging us out under the Golden Gate Bridge offshore. And we're only, I don't know, six months away from the race. And uh, I just remember thinking to myself, oh, shit, this, is, this could be the campaign here. You know, this is our, our race boat. And anyway, I, I remember being on the boat as it's turned on its side and we've got chase boats and Coast Guard and everyone trying to keep the boat inside the bay sitting on the side, I'm trying to tie this rope on and then the shadow just sort of going over me and I just sort of looked up and it was a Golden Gate Bridge and so the next thing you know, we just get dragged, you know, five, ten miles off the coast into the night and, um, yeah, just thinking, well, you know, this this is it. You know, this, this could really be the end of our 100 million plus campaign. Anyway, in the early hours of the morning, we had to wait till the tide turned. We just couldn't fight Mother Nature you know, we came back and the boat was just littered throughout the bay, you know, just carbon bits. And, oh, you know, I obviously didn't really sleep that night. Came back the next morning 
And then my phone was ringing and it was Larry Ellison calling, who was the owner. And I, and I was thinking, I was kind of expecting a call from Larry <laughs> because it was sort of all over, sort of broadcast live, this incident. And straight off the bat, I just basically said to him, listen, I'm sorry, I'm completely responsible. We shouldn't have been out there and that stuff. And and he just said, look, that's, that's not why I'm ringing you. You know, I know what you're doing is tough. I know no one's done this before, but I still think you guys can win. But I, I didn't say anything. I was just a little bit shocked. And he said, look, at the end of the day, you know, champions and champion teams always come back from adversity and tough moments. And I think you guys can come back from this. You just need to regroup and make a new plan. It was honestly like a lightning bolt going through my body. Like I'd sort of come, you know, selfishly come in that day, sort of sympathetic to myself, you know, of what I just caused. And that was the wrong way to approach it. We need to, okay, it's happened, but what are we going to do now? And I think someone like Larry and a lot of those guys, they go through a lot of ups and downs. You know, you don't become, let's say, a billionaire or a successful businessman without a few bumps in the road. And so in a way, that experience was, it was a frightening thing to go through because for a while we were sort of missing a couple of guys. We didn't know where they were. And But even then, the fact that we're probably going to lose the boat, but it put the team in a very, very tough situation there. But the interesting part was it was it was a moment to see, all right, are we going to sort of split apart and the fingers are going to start pointing or we're going to go on this witch, which would have been a quick witch hunt because my hand was up. Or were we going to come together and say, all right, guys, well, how are we going to solve this? Let's make a new plan and come back and try and learn from this and get stronger. And fortunately, that's the way it went. So goal setting is a really critical part in the team's campaign. And obviously for you personally, making goals, do you set those daily, yearly? How does that work? Yeah, definitely. Like I definitely try and set some personal goals of where I want to be and, and what I want to achieve. But for the team, on a development run program that involves so many different parts, I mean, with high grade composite construction, you know, there's a real manufacturing process to go through. You have certain design deadlines you've got to hit, engineering deadlines, the boat builders, if there's any little hiccups, you have specific sailing periods and weather periods you want to try and test in. So we're constantly operating on deadlines, which are essentially goals for us. You know, we need to hit these goals because one delay in any little department, whether it be the composite side, the electronics, the hydraulics, logistics, if something gets delayed, that's going to affect the entire program. You know, that's going to affect the guy designing some software there or the sailing team or... So yeah, it is goals and trying to hit a lot of those deadlines are are fundamental in the game. Personally, what are your goals outside of sailing? I love sport. So right now, my, uh, let's say, hobby is foil boarding at the moment. So Can't you know, get off the foils. <laughs> yeah, just love the foil. And the reason why I really like it is that what's great about these America's Cup teams is it's a massive team. Like for us to go sailing, it's like the ultimate entourage. Man, you got chase boats and cranes and cast of thousands, you know, just to go it's out like to do some sailing. It's like the men in black, but men in Prada. Oh, just like you wouldn't <laughs> believe in. how many people it takes to go for a sail. The beauty of the foil board is, man, you just pick that thing up and off you go, you pump up the wing and you're off and you're on your foiling, you know, and the feeling is amazing. So, yeah, I've been fortunate to hook up with a local crew here. We've been out uh, sort of tow foiling on the West Coast and it's just been a great release in that there's still things that apply that we learn. I mean, we're messing around with our power drills and the foils and sanding them and changing things on our foil surfboards. 
funny enough, some of those lessons we've been able to apply back on a large scale in the cup. So, yeah, for me at the moment, it's it's trying to get better on the surf on my foil board. <laughs> and the foil boards are obviously a lot cheaper than Yeah, yeah your a little boats. bit cheaper to operate the foil board. Can yeah. you actually tell our listeners uh, how expensive these American Cup boats are? Well, it's hard to put a cost. I mean, the, the materials are expensive. They're exotic, high-grade, composite carbon fiber. The metals are titanium, the hydraulics, the cylinders. I mean, it's they are very, very complex, but that's just the material side. In an America's Cup budget, more than 50% of the budget are people costs. So the salaries, there's flights, there's software codes. I mean, just the, the amount of design work and labor that goes into designing a boat like this is, man, thousands of hours to build it. You know, So again, they're not material costs. So yeah, the people costs are a big one, but it's a technology game. The cool thing I think about technology sports is when you see the learnings flow through to the rest of the industry. You know, for instance, you know, Formula One, a lot of the stuff they learn from there flows into the cars that you and I drive and a lot of those safety things they learn. In the marine industry, man, a lot of the stuff we learn goes through. Even like a simple thing of, we never wore helmets in the American Cup because we didn't need to, the boats were slow. When we went to these boats that were going fast and risky, we started wearing helmets. So naturally the kids and the optimists, they all started wearing helmets. Oh, we want to wear helmets too. And when you think about it, it's smart. You know, if you just had a little accident out there, things like that, the life vests, the, the uniform and the stuff that we used to wear has all been developed. But yeah, I love that the technology flows through to the marine industry and we, we see everyone benefit from that because the cost is big. Mm. Do you have a favorite boat? I think the one right now is, is pretty cool because it's so new and it hasn't been done before. And it's been such a fortunate time over this past decade to be in the game. We went to these giant multi-hulls. We went to foiling, these big sort of hard-wing aeroplane wings to power the boat. And now we're into these Mad Max-looking, you know, foiling monohulls. Every time it's been new and every time it's, it's taken the entire team out of their comfort zone, whether a designer, an engineer, or a sailor, that, yeah, I'd say at the moment these boats, because they're so new and we're really sort of learning along the way. Do your kids sail? Is it a sport that you'll be pushing them into or are they pretty cool just watching dad out on the water? It's fascinating having kids because you, naturally when you, you think, oh, they'll, they'll probably be just like me. And yeah, of course, they're going to do the things I like. But it's funny because they're two, both of them are actually quite different. You know, like the older one is more music orientated, art orientated, uh, social, let's say, probably a bit awkward and sensitive where the younger one is a complete opposite. You know, he's very competitive into sports and it's so rewarding seeing the two different personalities. And so they love the water. Clearly, they love the water. The younger one's definitely, I'd say, more competitive in terms of sport. He's played a lot of sports and I just love them to be involved in things that they're really passionate about and they enjoy. So the younger one used to be into baseball when we were living in America. Uh, he's just signing up for rugby now. My oldest plays in a uh, symphony orchestra here, youth symphony orchestra, and, and seeing them, the amount of work he puts in, and that's a team environment, but a team I never appreciated or really got to know until I started taking him to the practice and watching them all, how coordinated. And So, yeah, for me, as long as they're into something that I think involves – having a discipline and a schedule 
some teammates that you've got to work, you don't want to let them down. I think that's a fantastic thing for a kid. I used to say sport, but now that I've seen the music and this other side that was never there for me, I'd say just something that kids are passionate about. Do you have siblings yourself? Yeah, I have a younger sister and a younger brother who both sail and are based in Australia. So sailing is obviously throughout the family and has been. Well, it was just because of where we grew up. Yeah. You know, it was probably, it really is kind of like, you know, a surface sort of growing up at, let's say, Sunset Beach, like, because it, it was right there in front of us and it was the only way to get anywhere was to actually get on the water. And man, if it was pissing down with rain or storm, you're still going to get home. You're still going to go get the groceries. And so it just becomes a way of life. And whether you like it or not, you're spending hours on the water which is in your environment. So there was kind of a bit of a blessing in disguise, but yeah, they're both into sailing. My parents weren't really into sailing. They just happened to, you know, had this dream of sort of moving out of the suburbs into, let's say, the national park. And that's really what set it up. I always find your story does come from your upbringing and we, you know, the adversity that some people have either gone through or just the environment that you've been around. So yeah, can obviously see where that's come from. Being successful though comes with pressures of being a household name. How do you deal with those pressures of the media speculations, um, people talking about you and even just going out to the shops? The hardest thing today is social media Mm. because I think in the past, media was your newspaper and your TV. And for the most part, generally you could get somewhat of a balanced view, you know, and now clearly certain media would favor their national team. And that's natural in every country, you know. The issue today with social media, and it's something as an athlete, I do social media, you know, it's it's kind of a requirement, but it can be such a toxic environment And at the end of the day, do I think we're better or worse off with social media? Mate, no question, worse off. Because the problem is that people will, they'll make comments or statements they would never, ever do if they were sitting face to face with someone, you know? Mm. So like you and I, you know, we would speak a certain way, but how people would comment, let's say on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, without being face to face with that person, without even knowing that person, it's just incredible to see you know, the behavior of some people and how, you know, it's a real worry, you know, having kids, seeing what it can do for kids socially, you know, especially actually uh, young women, you know, Mm. the pressures they they can be put under and this sort of, like growing up as a kid, like, you know, I experienced some bullying, but you could tell it was going on, you know, it was obvious. (laughs) With social media, you don't know. That's the biggest problem. You don't know if, and there's a lot of, unfortunately, just not nice people out there. So for me, I'm a big boy. I've got no problems. I can look after myself, but I really worry about the social media side of things now because no one's accountable. Mm. How do you deal with it personally though? I mean, there must be times you obviously read the paper or you see what's going on on social media with headlines of Jimmy Spittle. Is that challenging? Yeah, it can be. Yep. But I think like most things with time and experience, you, you learn that you just can't one, you try not to read any of the comments, let's say, from a social media point of view, but you have to tell yourself, listen, if anyone wants to have an opinion on you that should come from someone that knows you and that's either worked with you or has spent some time with you and really knows what you're about, anyone that you know wants to have an opinion that doesn't know you, let's face it, they're probably going to get it wrong. 
Like, how could they really know if they've never really worked with you or been through some tough moments or pressure situations? Yeah, so for me, it's just developing a bit of a thick skin, not taking it too seriously and having a bit of a laugh because you know media are just, they're not going to get it right all the time. They're looking for that sort of statement or announcement that's going to get the clicks and look, that's the world we live in. So yeah, for me, what I've learned is just don't take it too seriously and for the most part, don't read it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You say it's such a team sport and we obviously see that and now listening to you, I realise how much of it is a team sport. But there must be days that you wake up as an individual and go, today is very hard. I mean, I get like that and it can be really tough. Do you get like that yourself? Yeah, it's definitely days where, yeah, yeah, man, for whatever reason, you may be less motivated, let's say, than maybe one of the other days before. But I've always found that discipline equals freedom. On those days where you wake up and that alarm clock goes off, you know, four in the morning and you think, oh, man, it'd be easy just to sort of sleep in and miss this session. Every time I've got up, got my gear, gone to the training after that session, man, I've never regretted it. Mm. You know, the only times I've regretted it if the one, those few times where I haven't gone. And that feeling, I think that's why I think that discipline really does pay off and it sets the tone for the day, you know. And I think if you get into a, you know, sort of a way of operating like that, good things happen. What happens when you don't turn up? Have there been times that you haven't turned up? <laughs> and, you know, you're the skipper. I can't even imagine my skipper not turning up. No, and I always, you know, I, I really am in fear of letting people down. And for me, it's it's a rewarding process. The the fact that getting up and going to work with some amazing trainers or, or coaches, that in itself is quite motivating. And I look forward to that because I know I'm working with people better than me. They are acting in a selfless way. They want to help make me and my teammates better. And the least I can do is to try and put in as much effort as I can to help repay that as a a debt of gratitude. What would be your greatest achievement? I've been fortunate enough to be involved with uh, some successful teams, but I always say you're only good as your last race. And the last America's Cup copped an absolute hiding. So I've always said that it's not about the past. It's not about too far into the future. It's always about the next race. That's what counts and that's what's important and that's what you have to spend all your time and energy on it. So, you know, even now, you know, we've sort of been through what I call the honeymoon period. We've been fortunate. We've just won the Prada Cup. We deserve to celebrate. There's no doubt in my mind, but the honeymoon's over. You know, we need to get on with back into the job. And and so that, I think that's the, the thing for me is always about the next one. You know, learn what you can from the past, but don't, I personally don't spend too long reflecting on on the wins and losses. It's more about, okay, what didn't we do well? What could we have done better? And how do I get better to give the team a better shot? You've had uh, mentors in your life. Uh, Sid Fisher was one of them. I believe there's quite a story around how he became your mentor. Yeah, so Sid Fisher was one of the old school hard men of Australia. I mean... He grew up in the building industry. His dad was a builder, so he'd be on the building industry as a kid. He grew up surf boat rowing, playing first grade rugby league, rugby union. He was banned from rugby for over vigorous play. Now, I've played rugby, and I thought that was the whole point. So you can imagine if you get banned for over vigorous play. This guy back then was a piece of work, he used to box. He was the hardest guy I've ever worked with in my life. Ruthless, relentless, unfair 
But I tell you what, if you want to go through an apprenticeship, that's probably the best way to do it because if you can go through and hang in there and just keep refusing to be defeated, keep turning up, keep coming back, you can just learn so many positive lessons there. But I met Sid, we were at, at an awards, it was like an Australian Sailing Awards. I was fortunate enough to win the Youth Award and I think he won like the Ocean Racer of the Year Award. I literally, I just went up to him and said, hey, I would love to get an opportunity to go out and try an ocean race at one stage. And he just said, what are you doing tomorrow? Which was a Saturday. And I just said, nothing. And he goes, okay, turn up at eight. You know, so I got there at six and <laughs> um, I was just sort of washing the boat, doing whatever. That was my doorway into the America's Cup. That is incredible. An opportunity. You never turn it down, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. You look, you look back and I'm sure you've done this as well where there's just been certain times where you could say it's lucky or there's just been certain opportunities or the door just cracks open and a lot of the times you've got to kick it open and you know it's a lot of effort to walk through it. If that situation didn't happen, may not have been in the America's Cup. That's one of the challenges with this game is there hasn't really been a pathway. It's not like, let's say, you know, in swimming, you go through, you know, let's say schools and a regional level and you work your way up and you can see your pathway to get to the games. I've got to qualify. I've got to hit all these certain things. There isn't any of that in the America's Cup. And I think my case has been luck. You know, I was lucky to meet Sid that night. I was lucky when we went ocean racing, we were able to do well. But you took the opportunity. You know, I see that very similar to my, how I started. You know, I was at a race meet and my coach, Rolly, came down and uh, spotted me and came up to me and said, I reckon your talent could represent New Zealand. Turned up to training on Monday morning, exactly the same thing. Turned up and here I am yeah. <laughs> as well. So, you know, and I've been with Rolly since eight years of age. Yeah, wow. Um, opportunities can turn into a longevity success. Yeah, I think so, you know, and, and interestingly enough too, like I've seen a lot of guys who are better than me with more talent and not make it simply because they didn't have that sort of drive and let's say weren't willing to put in the hard yards. They weren't willing to turn up every time early. Mm. Um, and again, I see that in the teams, the guys that shine and come through, not always necessarily the guy with the most talent. It's that guy that has that sort of never give up attitude, no ego, you know, the unsatisfied sort of hunger that he just wants more and he wants to get in there. But yeah, opportunities are key, but it's important to take them. You know, mm. if you see one, you just have to grab the ball with both hands and run with it. Do you see yourself now as a mentor to others or are you? And, and how do you give back to sailing? Yeah, well, look, I love doing anything for kids. It's so rewarding to see let's say that next generation of athletes coming through. And I think when, certainly in the game I'm involved, when I look at the, the next sort of wave of talent coming through, man, they are so much better than, well, when I say we, certainly way better than I was because I think they just seem way better educated. I think the tools that they've got now in terms of technology, even you know things like YouTube and the fact that they can really break down and see what's happening. I mean, if you want to learn to foil, you can go and see how one of the pros is doing it. I mean, back before the internet and YouTube, it was just a fact you'd have to sort of get out there and try and figure it out. So I think the younger generation is better prepared, better educated. They know more. I mean, even from a dietary side, the physical training, you know, there's so much more knowledge out there. But yeah, I'm really fascinated with helping people get into the sport. What does life after sailing look like for you? <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I, I love working with teams. I love working in a team environment. Always have. The cool thing I think about the cup and our sport in general is that there are, you know, I've got to see guys like Russell Coots and Sir Peter Blake, guys be involved in the competitive side, but then go on to different roles and responsibilities still involved, but not necessarily, let's say, on the boat anymore at a certain point. Now, that day's going to come. Like for me, it's all about competing. It's all about getting out there, but I'll only do it as long as I can help the team have a shot at winning. After then, yeah, I'm fascinated in a lot of parts of the of the game, going out, the fundraising, the managing of the budget, the coordination of the team, the running of these teams. It's a fascinating time because it's working with some amazing people. It's still taking you out of your comfort zone. To me, it's a stimulating thing because it's doing something different and taking you out of comfort zone again and learning something different. Could you sum yourself up in three words? Probably just need one, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> lucky. You've definitely worked hard to get to where you've got and opportunities arise on the way and you've taken them. We've obviously got the America's Cup coming up. What part of that excites you the most other than just getting out there and racing? The thing that's really exciting for me is that after the last campaign, it was a complete failure that I was responsible for. We were going for our third America's Cup in a row, which is an unbelievable opportunity and completely dropped the ball. And so it was a real tough time afterwards to sort of let all of your teammates, your family, your friends, you know, Larry, Russell, like, you know, it was such a terrible feeling just letting everyone down and sort of letting yourself down too. But on the flip side, it was also one of those times of, okay, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to sort of go and curl up in the corner there and hide? Or are you going to be completely honest and really go through those key moments where you got it wrong, where you failed, where you made some bad decisions and try and get stronger and come back? So that, to me, was a, a real interesting time because, one, I got to see how people, after a couple of wins in a row and going for number three, the entourage gets big. But as soon as you fail or lose, then you really see the guys you want around you or you see the guys that are still there mm. and, and that when the trophy and the champagne aren't being sprayed, some guys aren't there. That's an important lesson. But also the reason I'm sort of bringing this up is that Let's say there's been a lot of sleepless nights since Bermuda and now coming into this America's Cup match and working our way through the challenges, winning the Prada Cup and getting a shot again to go into this America's Cup final. What an amazing opportunity. And that's why I think back to that feeling straight after that loss in Bermuda and those days and every single day since then, it's been worth it. It's been rewarding. And now we get to go against the world's best. I mean, you just, it doesn't get any better than that for a competitor. In 2013, obviously, it was the famous comeback and probably classed as one of the most best races of your career. Would you think that's the case? And how did you deal with all the speculation going on around the comeback of beating Team New Zealand? Yeah, it was an incredible project to be a part of. And one of those things that you just couldn't have scripted it there we were again going against the best team in the world and for a host of reasons find ourselves 8-1 down in a first and nine win series on the world stage in San Francisco Bay as the defender 
you know, the funny thing is, you know, we spoke about that sort of big mistake I made with the capsize when I rode off the boat beforehand leading up to that race. And that was a moment I thought could have cost us the campaign. Funny enough, I reckon that was a key moment that got us through this really tough spot. We find ourselves at eight one down at match point because we'd already been through this super tough period then where if we were going to split apart or, you know, when the pressure comes on, we would have seen it then, you know, but the fact is we didn't. We actually came together. And so the mentality was, guys, if we can get through that, we can get through this. And so let's just take it one at a time. And and in a series that goes for sometimes almost two weeks, every day you're turning up and you're at match point. And it's tough to peak as an athlete every single day. I mean, you know what it's like. You can just come into the pool and just light it up with an awesome time. Next day, not so much. Why? Don't know. Some days it's just different. It's just hard to peak every single day. And that was a challenge, you know, during that series because it was just going on and on. But the key part I found effective was not thinking too far into the future. Like we don't have to win all eight of them today. Let's just focus on this first race let's win that race and we'll take it from there. And the mm-hmm. whole team had bought into this philosophy and everyone was sort of just picking up the other person and almost in a reckless sort of a way, like, yep, let's do it. Here we go, match point. And so, yeah, that was an amazing thing to be a part of because you got to see a big team of people under some real pressure and how they would behave and operate. Are you and Dean Bucker still rivals or friends or from that race? I reckon one of the coolest things about sport is the relationships you set up. So at the beginning, Dean and I used to do a lot of racing, you know, in the match race circuit and, and stuff like that. Both come from completely different backgrounds. Both have completely different personalities. Going into San Francisco, I just wanted nothing more than to kill the guy, you know, and um, on the water, obviously. <laughs> but ironically, as soon as we crossed the finish line in that race, is the first guy I thought of mm-hmm. because only he and I knew what, the other person felt because we're in the same role. No one else in the world knew what that was like, what we were going through right there. So I understood the pressures he was under. I understood the fact that he had New Zealand on his shoulders. But more importantly, I knew he was he was a champion guy. And so it was funny. It brought a competition like that where afterwards we actually became really good mates. And so now, you know, we'll go out, we'll hang out, you know, and so – it's such a cool part of sport. The two of us would probably never have met otherwise, let's face it, in normal life. But now, become great mates, you know, and, and because of sport, sport's brought us together. The fact that we've been in there, we've had some great races. I mean, mate, he's given me a lot of hidings on the water. <laughs> I mean, the America's Cup in Valencia, they swept us 5-0 in the Louis Vuitton final when, when I was ironically with Lena Rossa back in 2007. But yeah, we've had some great battles, but I'd say the best thing about sport is some of the relationships you build with usually your toughest rivals. Totally. You've got a place to stay wherever you go, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, what would be the piece of advice you'd give to someone wanting to be an American Cup skipper or a team member? There's no shortcut. There's no easy way. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a lot of hard work. But if it's something you really want, you can do it. I mean, I mean I'm living proof that if I can do it, you can definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing that people don't know about you that makes you an excellent skipper? I mean, you've got a very rich history so far already. Well, I, I don't know if I'm an excellent skipper, but I know I'm definitely surrounded by excellent people. You know, make me look pretty damn good. I think you're a great example of this. You compete 
as an individual. Now, I know you've got a massive team behind you. Absolutely. You know, you spoke about role, you spoke about all, all your coaching, but you can't deny it when that star cunt goes off, you're there competing by yourself against your other competitors. It's totally different for me. I've got a team of amazing people actually in the fight on the battlefield. Again, together we have a huge, t- when we get ashore and a land, we've got some great people around us. I've just been, again, very, very lucky. I've always had better people surrounding me. Incredible. So one last question. Who are you outside Jimmy Spittle, skipper and champion sailor? Well, I think what I, I need to be and I try to be is a dad and a family man. And that's something uh, definitely I, I feel like I have to work on because you know, I operate on a, I definitely get a little bit, let's say, addicted to what the task is at hand and the team environment. But yeah, away from that, it's uh, is a dad and that's something we've got to be better at. Thank you very much for coming on Outside the Lanes. I very much appreciate your time. You're a fantastic person. All the best for the America's Cup coming up. Thank you for listening to Outside the Lanes, a podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and if you did, I would appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe to Outside the Lanes podcast. It helps other people know that it exists. Thank you again to my wonderful guests. Until next time.